Hi everyone, I'm Alexia Jacques Casanova and you're listening to Do It Different, a podcast by Communicating the Arts in which I talk to artists and leaders from the cultural sector about their professional trajectories, their most successful failures and what they've learned from those. My guest today is Atiba Edwards, Executive Vice President and COO at Brooklyn Children's Museum. He spoke at Communicating the Arts in 2019 in Montreal about the surmountable challenge of inclusion. The interview you're about to hear was recorded on May 6, 2020, which means that some of the things we're referring to have to be put back in the context of the COVID-19 lockdown. Now let's dive in and hear how Atiba Edwards got to where he is now. I am currently the Chief Operating Officer and Executive Vice President at Brooklyn Children's Museum. And I've been in that role for a little over a year. Um, prior to that, I, I, I ran a school, a middle school, worked in finance. So it, it was a very interesting path to where I got where I am. Um, but I'm happy where I am right now. Great. Um, so you, you do have a very interesting uh, professional trajectory. I was uh, reading your, your bio and looking at your LinkedIn and I, I was, I was very surprised. So um, you have two universities degrees, two university degrees, one in industrial operations and engineering. Is that right? Yes. And the other is in liberal arts with a focus on poetry and musicology, yeah. um, which sounds amazing to me. Um, what, what made you pursue such different topics? Um, I would say growing up, I was always fascinated with things, um, which kind of led to, you know, the study of engineering, but also art. And as I got older, it became very evident to me that for whatever reason, society tends to divorce the two, keeping arts and the sciences separate from each other. And I just never understood that. Growing up as a child, they all worked in like, you know, you take blocks and you build a pyramid, you you do all these fun things. So I never saw why they were divorced from each other. In my mind, they're really one and the same, just dancing a solo dance together. And I loved both desperately and that passionately. And I felt studying both in, um, in college would really allow me to learn the things I didn't know. And start getting a little bit more deeper dive in how the some of the mechanics function and things like that. So to me, you know, the arts and the sciences are really one and the same. Uh, their root essence is just communicating and doing so in a manner that's pretty focused on efficiency as it relates to the human reaction and the human involvement. You know, you, you think about that's something that's very present now where you had a lot more focus go back into the arts as it relates to design and, and production. So, you know, many of us have some kind of phone in our hand that really is focused on art and engineering. So I think we carry that with us every day. Um, so that's really the big thing that led me to study both is that, you know, they're one and the same. And I, I never really understood or still understand why a lot of society tends to divorce the two. So you mentioned earlier that uh, before joining the Brooklyn Children Museum, you had uh, you've had had a, a variety of experiences, and you even worked as a credit analyst in the 
automobile sector. Is that right? Yes, that is true. Okay, so what what made you switch to you know the the world of uh, finance and cars to the nonprofit sector? It was I would say it's really two big things. Um, the first was building a certain level of expertise and skill sets in investment banking, and I always loved cars, but also it's a space that is known to not be diverse. So. To me, that was a, a unique engineering problem to solve. It's like, why is it that this space is a pretty much white male-dominated industry? Is there something special in the genes? And getting into it is like, it's not. So it was really a chance for me to really push myself to learn a lot and experience and exhibit in this space, but then take those skills and apply it to the not-for-profit sector, which oftentimes um, the space is... The, the space tends to shy away from using business practices in their work. So the arts and the businesses never really dance together. Um, to me, that has led to some inefficiencies in the space. And, you know, working with a lot of small organizations, such as the arts organization I started, like there's just certain practical things that we can apply that we learn in the private sector to the not-for-profit space and really make our work excel even more. But also, I've always had a huge focus and a huge passion with community work in any which way and being able to give back in any way that I was able to. So that's really what led um, those two things combined, worked in tandem to lead me from the private industries of finance and investment banking to the not-for-profit space of public education and also uh, museums and arts institutions. Hmm. And so as a, as a professional, as an individual, is there something that uh, you noticed being a common thread between all of those different experiences, different professional experiences? Is there something that, that could be a global takeaway from both the for-profit and non-profit sector? Yeah, I would say the two of the biggest common threads and lessons learned are first, the details are super important. There's a, a often phrase that the devil's in the details. So mm. the details is really the most important part of the work we do. And unfortunately, it tends to be some of the ones that are overlooked or rushed through, which cause us to go back and, and fix errors that were avoidable. So, you know, it's a common thing I say with some folks on my team and some people I work with that the worst mistakes to encounter are the ones that were avoidable. Meaning, you you know, if we just took a minute to pause and look at the details, we would have been able to figure out how do we avoid this pothole in our journey. Yeah. And then the second one is um, that nothing is really as complicated as it seems. Um, for me, a lot of relative value is applied to everything that I do and I think about. And the root cause is really the big push, but sometimes... Uh, folks don't take the time to ask the root cause and the questions to get to the why. So one of the things I learned in engineering school was um, there's a practice of asking, you know, the five whys. And it was started yeah. by Toyota, who was a, a Japanese inventor and industrialist whose son went on to start Toyota Motor Companies out of the Toyota families. And, you know, that was always the biggest push is if you keep asking why, you're really going to find out the root cause of this problem and be able to solve it better. And it's, it's you know, that practice of five whys or three whys is continued by many industrialists now. But to me, that's one of the most important things that I've learned is, you know, 
in the finance industry, like, okay, why is the market doing what it's doing? Okay, why is that causing that? And it's really, everything's interconnected, but we often don't practice the patience of asking those five whys to get to the root cause. Mm-hmm. That really, those two things led to what I would say is a global takeaway is that many aspects of life will be able to flourish if we take systematic approaches to them. And a systematic approach doesn't mean that you are stripping away the human element. It's actually allowing you to focus more on creating, iterating versus thinking about why I need to do this or, you know, why is this happening? Like some of the core aspects of our job that are routine and, and, and routinized, I should say, are the things that we shouldn't really think about. Like I know on this day I have to sign checks. I know on this day I have to approve payroll. Like these are the things that rather than thinking about, okay, when I'm going to do that today, like I know every Tuesday I assign all the checks and invoices I have coming in Tuesday for an hour. That's blocked out. So I'm never thinking about when I'm going to do that. And instead, I'm able to free up my mind a bit more to think about all the great things I want to create, all the great ideas I want to iterate on and provide. And, mm. um, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a practice that's captured in many books across the world. But it's really, if you think about systemizing and using checklists for the things that are routine and, you know, let's just call them mundane, it really allows you to free up your brain space to start making some beautiful things happen. So I think that's, to me, that's really the biggest global takeaway is that when I was in investment banking, every quarter I knew I had earnings reports. So I had a template in process. My boss and I um, created a very standardized template for our report. So we just plug in numbers and then we are able to think about what does this mean for an economic impact and market analysis and suggestions. In the school, very similarly, having very routine touch points and standardized things so I could think about what are all the great opportunities I can provide for the families, the students, and also the teachers that were at the school. And then now in, uh, in, in at Brooklyn Children's Museum and working in the cultural space, it's all the same. It's like if we can systematize and really get all of our team to work on a systematic approach, the work actually becomes much easier and you're able to find a lot more joy in it because you're thinking about creating these beautiful things versus yeah. when do I have to do this mundane task again? Mm. Yeah, and also if you if you do that, if you have all of your mundane tasks kind of uh, sy- system, systemized, systematized, yep. I don't yep. know how we say that, <laughs> um, then it's, it's like you have so much free space for creativity, which is so important in our sector to try, because we often tend to forget to be creative when we build new programs, new exhibitions, um, you know? And so I think this is very interesting. Um, and I love the, the five whys. Um, I don't know why, why I heard it. Maybe it was you. Maybe it was from your uh, talk at Communicating the Arts. But I've been using the five whys on like all level of my life, I whether it, it is professional or personal. I use it on a personal level too. When, you know, when I have an argument with my husband, I, I sit down, I'm like, okay, why are you upset? To myself, right? I sit down and like try and be uh, focused and think to myself, why are you upset? Okay. Uh, and so why and why and why? And usually I end up realizing that it's really not my husband's fault. It's yes. all about me, yes. you know? Um, cool. Awesome. So putting systems into place and asking why, great. And I think to, to build on that a bit more too, it's, you know, you think about someone like uh, Da Vinci, 
who mm. really married and was able to excel in the aspect of the arts and innovation. And I'm sure he had a very systematic approach to some of his creations. Whilst, you know, many in that same era and genre, like someone like Michelangelo, still had a systemized approach, but he was focused on the arts. Mm-hmm. He did the arts in many different ways. So, you know, from paintings to creations, but I, I would assume, I have no idea for truth, but, you know, the, the systematic approach really allows you to get to the root cause so that you can excel. So I think you nailed it right on the head is if we can routinize and systematize the mundane things, we can make so many things become beautiful. But oftentimes we're bogged down by the routine, the routine task that when it's time to create, we're just exhausted. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um, I'm curious to know when, you know, thinking about your, your past experiences, whether it is uh, working in finance or um, directing schools or now at the museum, is there anything that you wish you could have done differently? Um, I think one from the professional world, no. I felt, I, I feel I'm very fortunate in that every step I've taken or been forced to take has created a puzzle piece that's synced and locked so greatly with the next ones. So I would, yeah, I would do nothing different. Um, everything worked out and I, I feel very blessed, but everything really synced up. So the skills I learned in finance, I was able to apply to schools and really harness some more community building skills and, and just, you know, thinking about from a child's perspective, which we often forget. And then I'm able to take that building of finance and then thinking about a child's perspective that I really developed at the school and, you know, in the work we were doing to then apply that to the museum as we think about, again, why are we creating this exhibit? Is this piece, you know, five feet off the ground, does that make sense if a child is really two to four feet tall? Let's think about that. So that's, um, I would say everything fortunately created a puzzle piece that synced up effortlessly with the next one. Hmm, I see. Uh, so when did you join the Brooklyn Children's Museum? February 5th, 2019. Okay, so pretty recent, huh? Yeah, yep. Um, what, what would you say has been your biggest challenge since you joined that institution? Um, it's learning how, how museums operate. Um, and meaning like there are certain things I really want to get done, but I know I can't do them right now because there's a million other things to get in place beforehand. So that can look like uh, an exhibit and creating an exhibit that can look like a small tweak and using, um, you know, some, some integrated technology in the museum. Like those are things I really want to get done and, and put into practice, but I, I know I have to exercise some restraint and there are things I need to do before I can do that. So all of the, I would say the prelude things, um, has been the biggest challenge of just really exercising patience. Because I, I grew up going to this museum as a child. I taught a um, 10-week art residency there about five or six years ago. I brought my nephews and my nieces there. So this museum is very near and dear to me. And I, am, I, I feel super fortunate to go in every day and work as, you know, call that my job. Um, but I have to realize, like, there's things that I have to do that I need to do before I can do the things that I want to do at the museum. Mm, I see. Um, what would you say has been your most successful failure? And by that, I mean the one from which you learned the most, obviously. Yeah, I would say um, 
you know, failure, I sometimes use the word falter, um, but I would say the most successful one was when I got fired from uh, an investment banking I went to after I started at J.P. Morgan Chase. I went to another company um, to work there and the business and the entire group sort of changed from when I started. And I remember I got called into the office one day and said, unfortunately, we have to let you go. And I said, wow, like this is the first time I've ever gotten fired in my entire life. And I've been working since I was 13 in different things. Um, I walked about three miles, called my folks like as soon as I got outside and like told them what happened. And, uh, you know, my both my parents were on the line at the same time. And they said, well, you know, think about this as like a, a blessing, actually, because you've worked for, 20, you know, at the time, about 10 plus years, a decade plus straight but you've never taken a minute for yourself. So use this time to think about what it is that you want to do, what it is that the things you have wished you could have done but never made the time for. But most importantly, like take this time for you. Just don't worry about rushing into something else and doing something like you're smart enough, you're you're well, you know, head on your shoulders, but take this time for yourself. And, and that to me really was a lesson learned because it's so true like in you know in new york um we're always in a rush but we're in a rush to go nowhere and that's the thing that that walk told me and that talk with my parents told me is that sometimes we have to slow down and be very intentional with what we do and why we do it and make the choice for the best outcome for oneself like put yourself first and and use that as your guiding north star yeah, you, your parents give great advice. We should have them on the podcast. <laughs> they, they've done wonders. Um, I have two brothers, two sisters, and they've raised us all fantastically well. Um, we're all <laughs> doing different things. But yes, you. I will share that with them. My parents do give great advice. <laughs> and so what, what did you do? Did you did you follow the advice? Did you take some time off? What happened? Yeah, I um, so I walked another two miles and I and again in New York walking is like a, a unheard thing but I was like I'm just gonna walk walk no music nothing I'm just gonna walk and really take my time so I took two years off and I was fortunate you know to have enough savings in place that I can kind of do freelance work for two years and not have anything steady but I mm-hmm. took two years off um I taught some art classes I did some freelance financial work I I then started looking at what next, because after two years, it's like, I need something else to do. I'm, I'm bored again. Um, so I started looking into going to the School for Visual Arts to study uh, design for social innovation and applied, got through, went through everything, uh, and then had my final interview, I guess. And mm-hmm. that's earlier that day, a best friend of mine, um, she was a director of operations at another charter school and she said why don't you check this out like I know you need something to do I think this would be a good fit I sent in an application I got an interview uh, a couple weeks later and I was then forced to make a tough decision of do I go to grad school or do I take this job Mm. Um, and you know after two years I realized how much I enjoyed doing the community work and this gave me a chance to do that right away while grad school could have and probably would have helped um, I think School for Visual Arts does some great things, but I, I, I ended up joining um, Uncommon Schools because, again, the, the recommendation of my best friend at the, and six years later, loved it. Mm, lovely. 
Um, and so let's let's come back to today, to to right now. Could you um, tell us maybe what your typical week or day looks like at the museum? And of course, I mean typical as in during non-sanitary uh, crisis yes. settings. Um, I usually wake up around six o'clock in the morning. Um, I've been getting up around that time since I was in high school because I went to uh, Bronx High School of Science, so I had an hour commute. So my body clock got used to that, and I, I just it's hard for me to get away from that. So about six days a week, I get up around 6 a.m., um, you know, do some work around the place, do some, and then I get into the office, and I usually just walk the building. Um, we open at 10 to the public, so I try to get in a little before then just to walk the building, make sure everything's up and running. And then at my desk, I have a couple of standing meetings throughout the week, catch up on email, catch up on voicemail, and... Depending on the day, I, you know, each day I have something specific. So, like, for example, on Tuesday, that's my finance day. I review finances for an hour. I have a meeting with my finance team for about an hour and a half or so. And then we kind of do some next plans from there. And I usually try to walk the museum floor and the entire building once in the morning and then once in the afternoon, engaging with uh, visitors, talking to the staff who's on the floor and just, you know, being present. So those are some of the fixed things I have um, on a recurring sort of normal day basis, if you will. Mm. What about now with the, you know, current situation? Yeah, now um, every everything's at home. I'm still getting up at 6 a.m. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah, just like I don't see why I have to change it. So I get up at 6 a.m. I do a light workout because I can't go to a gym or I don't really go outside that much. Um, and then now it's a lot of emails, a lot more emails, um, and a lot of phone conversations that happen over video now. So every day I have probably two or three different phone conversations. And really right now we're just, you know, my boss and I, the president, uh, we're just planning of how, how we're going to reopen, thinking about what, uh, let's just call it revised normal looks like. And looking through all the changes that uh, this crisis is causing us to make now. So a lot of it's just future planning. You know, future planning as in let's make it to the end of the week. Let's make it to the end of the fiscal year. And let's make it for the future. So we do a lot of planning around that. So I have um, a lot of Excel tabs open and spreadsheets running and models and financial analysis and projections that I look at every day. Wow. Um, what? What do you think you've learned from, you know, the, the whole uh, COVID-19 situation? And um, based on what you've learned from that situation, is there anything that you think you will change in your professional or maybe personal practice? Yeah, I would say one of the things I've learned is that this, 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 global, uh, this global crisis and pandemic or, and, and issue across the world has really put us all in the same boat, but there's a, a greater interest and a greater willingness to help. And I've seen that really play out because everyone for the most part is in the same situation. You know, um, business is closed, things are slow, they're trying to figure out how to do this and how to think about that. So there's been a very wonderful outpouring of support and just asking for help and also making sure that you provide help when asked as well. So I think um, the biggest, one of the things that I've learned from this is just, you know, making sure 
one makes the time to help others as they come up. And, and sometimes you have to invest a lot more in helping others because, again, you're, you're trying to show and display and provide some systems that might help streamline some of the work that people are doing. That when you know we're in a crisis, sometimes we lose focus of the systematic approach to solving problems. Um, so I, I think that's one of the biggest things I've learned is that sometimes when things are, you know, when the sky is falling, some people start to run around with without a clear sense of direction. And not saying I always have the answer, but if I can provide an answer, and sometimes that answer is just listening, you know, just shutting one's mouth and opening one's ears to listen and, and hear without trying to solve a problem. So making time for for people and making time for the human element is really the biggest thing that I think is a takeaway from right now. Mm-hmm. Is there a specific change that you would like to see in your field, in the museum, and you know, um, more generally in the cultural field? I think keeping that same notion of making time for the human element, because you know, this will pass, and in a year, two, three, four years, I just hope that myself included, we don't regress to sort of the normal. Um, focus on oneself and feeling like, you know, there's only so much of the pie that anybody can get. So we start hoarding bigger slices. So keeping an element of support, keeping an element of collaborating, keeping an element of networking, keeping an element of providing resources, you know, kind of what you guys have been doing. And I spoke with Janine as well, like, you know, providing resources for others so that they can learn from your success, but also your failure. And I just hope that when this passes, we remind ourselves about the importance of that. Mm, cool. Is there, before we finish, is there um, maybe a question or that you want to ask our listeners or an advice that you think could be useful to them? Um, I think the piece of advice is kind of what we you and I discussed earlier is just really pause and ask yourself the, the, you know, the three whys, the five whys, but there's always a root cause. And especially when there's conflict between oneself and another, or either internal, take, take a moment to get to that important part. And then the question is, you know, what, how quickly can you pivot your direction when you run into a roadblock? And having that plan in place, or not even a plan, just having the steps in place will help you become successful, but also help others as well. Mm, lovely. So if people want to follow you and, or you know, get in touch with you, how can they uh, find you online? Where yeah, are you? I am on, um, I, I have a presence everywhere. I'm working on being present everywhere. Um, <laughs> So on Instagram, it's just my first name, A-T-I-B-A, but instead of the I, it's the number one. Uh, but I do most of the posting through uh, Focus. So F-O-K-U-S dot org is our website. F-O-K-U-S-A-R-T is our Instagram page. And then also um, I, I have a lot of other things. Where, you know, My family runs a vegan catering business, so you can find that on my profile. And then- BCM Kids, Brooklyn Children's Museum, brooklynkids.org. That's that's where we I spend most of my day as well. So between those three spaces, you can find me to some extent and what I've been up to. So once the interview was over, Atiba and I continued chatting and... 
He asked me if he could turn the interview back on me and and ask me how I was doing. But also, and and that was such a nice question to ponder on, he asked me what had been the highlight of my week. So I shared with him the details of a great evening spent with my husband. You know, this kind of night when you just talk for hours on end about everything and anything. And to be honest, it felt it felt good. It felt very good at the time of the interview, which again was in the thick of the lockdown here in France. I think we'd been socially isolating for at least six weeks. And it was nice to take a few seconds to think about this highlight. That is amazing. That I think that is one of the things I would add as a question to our mm. listeners is really taking the moment and think about a highlight and rather than asking, you know, how one is doing, because most of the time two things happen. Either you're asking that question just out of principle and you, you, mm. it's like, yeah. it's a common, it's a human practice. Oh, Hey, how are you doing? Like it kind yeah. of works hand in hand, but the other side is oftentimes the person may not give you the clearest or truest answer because Either they don't want to talk about it, they don't know how to talk about it, or they're assuming you don't really want to know. Are you yeah. doing the principal ask? So I always say, like, all right, you know what? What's one of your highlights from the last week? And then what's one of your lowlights from the last week? And, you know, celebrating the high and the low together, mm. we're still here. Like, we made it, you figured out, you reveled, you enjoyed yourself. So that's always, I usually ask those two questions in hand. Um, sometimes just the highlights, because now it's more so focused on highlights in this current environment we're living in. Hey, how about you take a moment right now to think about the highlight of your week? Go on. I will pause for a few seconds so you can do so. Good. I hope it felt good. Now, as this episode comes to an end, let me share with you the four key learnings I took away from my conversation with Atiba. Number one, the devil's in the details. Unfortunately, they're often overlooked and the worst mistakes to encounter are the ones that were avoidable. Number two, nothing is really as complicated as it seems. Identify the root cause maybe using the five wise techniques that we discussed. Number three, systemize all your mundane tasks so you can make space in your brain and in your schedule for creativity and creating beautiful things. And number four, when the sky is falling down, sometimes the answer to the problem is just listening. Listening and making time for people. This podcast is brought to you by Communicating the Arts, a global network of cultural leaders who gather three times a year in Europe, North America and the Pacific. You can tweet at us using the Do It Different hashtag or the Communicating the Arts hashtag. If you want to go further, we also craft and deliver high quality online masterclasses called Best Practices for Cultural Leaders. 
So who's leading those great masterclasses, you may ask? Well, we have Linda Butler from the Fine Arts Museum of San Francisco, as well as Emma Cantwell from the Louvre Abu Dhabi. We also have Julien Guinut from the Fondation du Patrimoine in France and Gift Chansa from Circus Zambia. So if you want to know more about those masterclasses or and uh, register, just go on communicatingthearts.com. This show is hosted and produced by me for Communicating the Arts. It is mixed and edited by Kevin Kelly, who also wrote and performed our theme song. If you like what you heard, subscribe on Spotify, Anchor, or wherever you listen to your podcast. And you can also rate our show so that more people can find it and enjoy it. Thanks a lot for spending time with us. We'll be back soon for a brand new and exciting episode. <laughs>